our true enemy has yet to reveal himself. You people are all right. Godfather, I've seen that movie 200 times. Godfather 2 was definitely the shit. The third one, a lot of people didn't like it, but I think it was just misunderstood. Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall, Season 2 Coppola cast, going through every film in the filmography of Francis Ford Coppola. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm the other co-host, Brian Connolly. All right, so we're finally back recording, (laughs) and we're finally here at Godfather Part 3. (laughs) <laughs> and we're still uh, not recording the same room because it's Texas, and I think we're on stage two. But next, maybe the next episode, hopefully, we'll be back with better sound um, in person. Um, but hey, let's talk about what are you drinking? Because we're recording this early in the day on a weekday. Because yeah. this is what grownups do. Grownups can drink whenever they want. Yeah, it's amazing, especially so. if it's wine. You know. Exactly. Yeah, it's totally acceptable. Like it's weird if you were drinking like we're shots pounding. of tequila or whiskey, yeah. uh, like or a cocktail. People would be like, "Whoa, whoa, that's weird." It's noon on a Thursday, but since it's wine, like that's totally, totally acceptable. <laughs> we're being sophisticated. Uh, so so I have I've had this for a while. It's one that uh, that my wife uh, got from uh, the store from a store probably target uh but i saved it because it is the sophia rose oh sophia yeah. rose monterey county 2018 uh there's like no it? there's no description or anything it's in a wine i mean it's in like a like kind of like a champagne bottle and i thought it was going to be sparkling but it's not. I've definitely had sparkling Sophia Rosé before, but this is just a a Rosé, and I like it. Uh, you know, I, I chilled it the, the appropriate <laughs> amount of time. <laughs> well, I also got a Sophia. I got the Sophia Blanc du Blanc in a can, and this one is sparkling, and it's really good, and I believe there's nothing on this either. Um, but it comes with this weird little rectangle, and I don't know what this is. So I oh, those are this. the, the yeah. that is a little box that has paper straws inside. Oh, of really? It. Yeah. Let me let me see what this is. Oh yeah, look at that. Oh, cool. Oh, it's like a little pink bubble straw. So I guess that goes in the can. And look at that. Mm. Even more sophisticated. And I guess supposedly, I think it was the Blanc du Blanc. This was a made by Coppola for her wedding for oh. Sophia Coppola's wedding when she married the guy from Phoenix is that the band that yeah that's the with? band and so he wanted a wine for her wedding and he made the Sophia Blanc de Blanc and my guess is at the wedding they were served like this with cute little straws because doesn't that seem like something that Sophia Coppola would have at her wedding yeah that's something yeah. that grown-up Zoe from Life Without Zoe would have at her party <laughs> and it's good it's really dry and Blanc du Blanc means it's white wine made from white grapes as opposed to white wine made from red grapes, which normally is what white wine is. So it's special. I believe James Bond orders a Blanc du Blanc a few times. Um, I've had those uh, tiny cans before, which are 
cool. I, I, I really like those tiny cans. I don't know why. Maybe because of the paper straws. Um, I definitely prefer that to this uh, regular rosé, but still like it. Still, you know, got its rosé spark, nice fl- uh, aftertaste on the tongue. Yeah. All right. So here we are, Godfather 3. It's weird because, you know, the first two movies we reviewed fairly close together. I think it was just a conversation between the two. Is that yep. right? And then we had to wait through all the 80s and the rest of the 70s to get to Godfather 3, as did the rest of the world. Is that Everyone had to wait forever. A movie that wasn't really going to happen or supposed to happen, and we'll get into that. Uh, but it happened, and we're doing it, and now it's my turn to try to <laughs> navigate this plot. Uh, I've seen it three times before this episode, like recently, and I still am so confused by a lot of the pl- the plot. Like, it started to make sense by the third time, because, well, let's just get into it. So, <clears throat> and we're just going to review the regular version, and then when we're done with that, we'll talk about the director's cut that came out, uh, like, last year or two years ago. Um, So we open, it's now the late 70s, 79, I think, 78, somewhere in there. 79. And uh, Don Michael Corleone, played by Al Pacino, is getting a special like medal by the Catholic Church. Like, uh, like what, 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 you're gonna have to help me with this plot, AJ. What's the medal? It's the, uh, the medal of Saint Sebastian, San Sebastian. And he was the saint that for you art, enthusiast he's a saint that was martyred uh by having a bunch of arrows shot into him and there's a really famous painting and it's one of the things that like you know like a murder that hannibal would recreate or something on that show yeah so he gets this award and it's just like an award for being i'm guessing like charitable like just a you know like you're you're helping the catholic church out so we're giving you this medal and then of course because it's a coppola movie and it's a corleone family they're gonna have a big party with all the characters in the whole movie at this party because that's just what the Godfather movies like to do. <laughs> you start a movie with like a half hour plus party scene with everybody. And so that's what happens. They have this big party. Uh, and this is all in New York City, by the way, right? They're yeah. all they're all in New they're all in New York now. They're no longer in Lake Tahoe or wherever. They're 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 here in uh, New York. So they have the big party. Um, the whole family's there that's still alive that hasn't been murdered from the first two movies. So uh, ex-wife Kay shows up, played by Diane Keaton. Uh, uh, the sister's there, Talia Shire. Um, you have um, Sophia Coppola plays Mary Corleone, the, the daughter, um, Don, Michael's daughter. Uh, you have the son, Anthony, played by Frank D'Ambrosio. And you have um, Don Novello again, Father Guido Sarducci. Him and Coppola really had quite the run. I think he was or became a family friend of the Coppolas. Yeah. And he plays sort of like the guy who's dealing with like the media or whatever. He's just sort of like a go-between. Like the the press agent. Press agent for Michael Corleone. And uh, there's a whole bunch of like reporters there. And one of them is played by Bridget Fonda. And they're trying to get more of the dirt on Michael Cor- like Corleone. And, and uh, Father Guido Sarducci is like, no, no, no. We're here just for this award. Like, I'm not going to answer these questions. We're not going to talk about this. This is to celebrate his, this award the church has given him. 
So <laughs> Joe Mantegna shows up as Joey Zaza, and he's sort of like this rival gangster guy. He shows up into the party, and the party stops dead. Everyone's singing and having a good time, the children dancing. He walks in, he tries to sing along, and everyone's like, stops and just kind of look at him they're like Ugh. and i guess he was invited <laughs> or just decided to show up it seems like, like he crashed but he must like have he been invited with all the security yeah. you know and his he's sort of like uh, a gangster but he's very much in the public eye very much the opposite of michael corleone and he is very much based on joseph colombo who was the boss of the colombo crime family and who helped do the, he started the Italian American Civil Rights League to actually, uh, I believe they, they protested uh, the Godfather and made it so the producer had to take out the word mafia. And because a lot of the Italian American Civil Rights League was a front in a way to just convince people that there was no mafia. So it was, it was just kind of like this bullshit thing to just tell people, no, no, there's no mafia. No, no, and under this guise of like, we're trying to defend Italian Americans. And uh, and so Joe Montana is kind of like, they allude to that in this movie that he's like in the public eye. He's like portrayed as this like generous man. Later on, we see more of this, but he crashes the party. And then the other person who shows up is uh, the cousin, Vincent Mancini, played by Andy Garcia. And he is the illegitimate child of James Kahn's character from the first movie with the mistress that he had, he had this kid. And so he goes around town telling people that he's a, he's a member, he's a, he's part of the Corleone family in a way, but he works for Joey Zaza. And then also at this party, you have BJ Harrison played by the handsome tan George Hamilton, who's basically the Robert Duvall character, but Robert Duvall didn't want to be in this movie. So they hired a new actor to play basically the guy who deals with all the business stuff for, for the Corleone family. And then you also have Don Altobello played by Eli Wallach. And he is great. And he's, how would you describe him? He seems like he's a family friend. He knew Michael's dad. He knew Vito. Yeah. It seems like he's, I mean, he's definitely the boss of, a family but uh but they're friendly and friendly they're friendly like they'd be an an ally so i don't know how that fits into because that godfather uh michael killed all the heads of all the families (laughs) at the end of godfather once i don't know how he fits into that but these like the old you you take one head down and a new one comes into its place the old family friends you know like you know he wasn't causing any trouble in godfather one so that's so that's why we didn't meet him And so all these people at this party and uh, the, the kind of two, the main things that happened at the party, which set kind of a lot of the plot of the movie, which is classic Coppola Godfather. First you have, there's some scheme that Michael's doing with the Catholic church where he's giving them a lot of money and giving the Vatican a lot of money to secure a place within the Vatican to kind of hold. It's very complicated. <laughs> like it's under this guise of like, oh, my daughter Sophia, and she's going to be the spokesperson, and we're giving money to help the church help you know people in the world. But it really is so that so his company can like own in Italy. It's like the Europe. Vatican <laughs> owns a company called, or owns part of a company called Immobiliare, and Michael wants their stake in that company and then he will control the company and be a legitimate businessman. But to do that, he's giving them like something like $600 million 
under the table. Like it, at that ceremony, he gives him a hundred million dollars, yeah. just a hundred million you know, <laughs> for charity. But under the table, he gives him six hundred million, and then the Vatican's going to use that to, you know, do their shady Vatican bank stuff or pay off their <laughs> their debts or whatever. And it's worth noting that at this point in in the family. Michael is supposedly kind of clean of crime now. He's closed. He's not a part of the casinos anymore. That he's like a quote unquote legit businessman now. It, or that's the image that he wants people to see. Uh, also set up is the two cousins, Mary and Vincent, Sofia Coppola, Andy Garcia, have a little bit of a flirtatious, some would say vastly inappropriate <laughs> relationship that begins here where it's very playful Andy Garcia is flirting with her. Then she reveals to him that they're cousins. He's like, and he's like, oh, and he has this kind of weird look of like, oh, weird, <laughs> flirting with my cousin. Not that that slows down at all while the movie progresses. Not at a normal all. person would be like, oh, I'm related to, back away, I'm so embarrassed and I must now take five showers to wash the guilt and shame away. <laughs> it's but- arrested development. <laughs> and then the other thing that's going on is Andy Gar- uh, Vincent, Andy Garcia, and Joey Zaza, Joe Mantegna are having a beef. They're not getting along. And again, in classic Godfather beginning fashion, they have to have a quiet meeting with a member of the Corleone family in a room with a big desk. And they have this meeting where basically Joey Zaza is like, I don't like this guy. He's like a wild, wild guy. He says he's part of your family. Is this, is this wise guy true? And then Andy Garcia's character is like, He's speaking shit about the family. He all over town. Like this is I like I don't like this guy. Fuck this guy. And it ends with Michael thinking he settled it, and he's like, "Hug, hug each other. Like just be friends. This is fine. Yes, it's true he's related to me, but we should all get along." And Vincent's like, "Okay." So he gives Joey Zaza a hug, and pulls a Mike Tyson and just bites a big chunk of his ear, real hard, <laughs> makes it bleed, and then of course Joe. Joey Zaza just kind of runs out with his bleeding ear, and Michael's like, "Okay, fine, Vincent, you can work for my family. You just be, just be a part of, be like, work for me instead. Like, clearly, that'll work better." And that that's sort of the plots that are set up here. And then uh, the movie continues to go through those plots. You have the two cousins falling in love, making pasta together, having a very strange relationship because they're first cousins like they're not said it's not a franklin and eleanor situation no it's more of a uh jerry lee lewis uh, situation (laughs) it's it's weird the movie we can talk about it it's kind of strange how the movie portrays it uh michael is definitely not into it he's but he's not into it in a way of like you're too dangerous not your cousins (laughs) Yeah, everyone keeps telling Mary that it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Like, and all like, and then some people are like, and it's wrong, but mostly it's dangerous. Like, you could be collateral damage if like <laughs> shit goes down with him. And according to Coppola on the commentary, this was based on, I think it was his grandparents, he said, that were cousins, something like that. So, strange things going on in the family. Uh, and then you have, all the stuff of the Catholic church go on in this movie. A lot of it based on real events, which I didn't know until afterwards. And it gets really in depth with sort of like the Pope passes away. They get a new Pope. They don't like the new Pope. 
the dealings are going weird. There's a lot of money laundering going on, a lot of like intense corruption within the Vatican going on here beyond just dealing with the mafia. <laughs> Uh, and there's a lot of that. And it gets really complicated. And it took me a few watches to kind of really even not quite understand <laughs> what all happens. Um, but based on real life, like there was a Pope, like all these things happen where the Pope dies after only being Pope for 30 days. And maybe he was murdered. Maybe he just had a heart attack. It's you know unknown. Uh, a lot of this stuff going on, like kind of the new Pope trying to clean house of the corruption in the Vatican and them like not having a good time. And dies of... <laughs> and, and then dies immediately huh dies immediately and then you have a lot of um um stuff with andy garcia kind of being a loose cannon and him having this kind of continued beef with joey zaza there's a great scene um at the uh the the fiat the feast of san gennaro is that what it's called yeah it, it's the same feast uh yep. from godfather 2 uh, yep. with robert de niro that famous scene and I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. It's sort of how uh, Vincent gets his vengeance on Joey Zaza. And, uh, and that scene's great. It's, uh, they're having this big parade. Joey Zaza's walking around being like a cool guy. They're giving away a car. And some greaseball sitting on the car mocking Joey Zaza and then begins to key the car. And when he goes to stop him, then all hell breaks loose because you realize parts of these, these hooded characters in this parade are actually member, like friends of Vincent. And they like they, there's this whole crazy scene of violence. Uh, Andy Garcia disguised as a cop on a horse, which was an extra touch that seemed. That, and so I guess his character knows how to ride a horse in New York City. <laughs> I don't really understand that, but he does it quite well. There's also a great scene um, in the top of a casino, like a like a Jersey casino, uh, where all these members of the of different casinos and mob families are sitting around, and Michael's trying to tell them. Like, you're all getting paid off. I'm closing the casinos. Here's a big check. And then there's this crazy scene of violence featuring a helicopter, an insane amount of... It's probably the most violent scene in the movie of in, like, in terms of body count. And it kind of feels like a scene out of Scarface. Like, it feels yeah. really crazy and ridiculous and over the top. And, of course, Coppola loves his helicopters. Um, and then you have a lot of stuff in, in Sicily and in Italy with Michael kind of going there doing these dealings so you have kind of a lot of these callbacks to the first godfather as he's going to a lot of the same locations a lot of the same characters again the people that are still alive him reminiscing through scenes from the first movie of remembering the lady he married that died in the car uh accident um he has these sweet moments with uh Kay, like him and Kay kind of get friendly again and he gives her kind of a walk through part of his like attempt at redemption yeah. Um, uh, oh, and I forgot to mention at the party earlier, um, the son, Anthony, wants to be, he doesn't want to be a lawyer. Or he doesn't want to have, have a real legit job. He wants to be a singer. He wants to be a, a, an opera singer. And just like in reality, his first job is being the lead in a huge opera in Italy. <laughs> Like his first time out <laughs> of uh, Cavalleria Rusticana premiering in Sicily, which is why they go to Sicily. And I feel that's sort of Coppola showing his cards of being sort of a rich guy for a long time to think that you can just be like, I want to be an opera singer and then just be this lead in a huge opera. Just go to Italy and that'll just happen. 
like you don't have to work your way up he just you just that's just how it goes maybe the corleone family paid off some people to get him to be <laughs> the lead um and then you have this thing of you find out that eli wallach isn't great and he kind of wants to help turn on the Corleone family. And then there ends up being a hit out on Michael. And they hired this crazy hitman and, and his son who does a donkey impersonation. Yeah, that's a strange, strange touch. <laughs> he goes after Michael trying to kill him. And then you have this amazing climax, 30 plus minutes all during the opera while shit's going on uh, elsewhere with the Vatican with people getting like whacked and also just these, this hitman trying to kill Michael all to this opera. And it's great. Um, and then the movie uh, ends in tragedy. <laughs> yeah. Like Michael uh, uh, his like how Godfather movies all begin with a big party. They all end with multiple people being executed in different locations yeah. at the same time. And that all works. Michael's well, really Vincent's henchman go yeah. out and kill the other members of the family and like hey it all worked out except and so then Sophia Coppola ends up in the crossfire character Mary gets killed on the steps of the opera and then there's a great moment of Michael Corleone holding her and screaming but you don't hear the screams you just hear music but you can tell he's screaming and then you only hear the scream at the very end and it's really haunting and then you flash forward to like 30 years later or whatever and Michael Corleone is now an old man living in Sicily and he's sitting in a chair and you watch him die and then the movie's over but there you go that's uh the plot of Godfather 3 there's definitely a lot more going on <laughs> it's it, it's complicated it's like yes I I also watched it three times and I understood it more as I watched it it's like the LA confidential thing of if you watch it once you're you can follow what's happening, but you're confused as to what or why. <laughs> and then if you watch it again, you can understand it in, enough, but but only while you're watching it. And then if you had to explain it later yeah. like on a podcast, <laughs> you couldn't really. Like Eli Wallach is, yeah, it turns out to be the villain. He got promoted from the ugly to the bad, I guess. And yeah. <laughs> but it turns out that he's not even like the head villain, that there's this Vatican uh, business, Vatican bank businessman who's really the guy pulling the strings. And he's the one that's like ultra hard to get to and killing him is going to be a suicide mission. <laughs> uh, but he's, he's a character that like you, you meet kind of early on in the movie, but then he's revealed as like, oh, this is the secret villain. It's like, what, that guy? Have we met him before? And <laughs> like, it, 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 yeah, there's no like big impact of like, oh shit, it's this guy. Yeah, I mean, it's great. I like, right off the bat, I really like this movie. I think this movie's totally good. Is it as good as the first Good Godfather movies? No, but like what movies are? <laughs> and I think this movie definitely gets a bad rap but I really like it a lot. And like even being confused by the plot, even the first time around recently, I still was into it, this movie. I still really like it. It has, it definitely has major problems which we'll talk about, but it is good. <laughs> to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Mad 
Eggnog Time, The Paperboy, Mordecai, After Last Season. The World is Wrong is an extremely positive podcast where Andras Jones and Brian Connolly champion films the world is wrong about. Available on Paperhouse Network wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> so why don't you, AJ, so do you like this movie? I do. I, I agree. I think we are in sync, at least uh, for you know four out of five members of NSYNC. <laughs> on this is uh on on this movie i think it's good i think it's really good uh is it as good as godfather one or godfather two no but but what is you know yeah this could yeah. be you could make the best movie of of you know whatever year you can make the best movie of 2021 is it going to be as good as godfather one or two probably not <laughs> yeah you're talking about two of the greatest American films of all time or films of all time. And that's sort of like what we said before, like this is the thing that's haunted Coppola his whole career is that everybody's always trying to compare everything he makes to the Godfather movies. And it just isn't, you know, not fair for him. Because <laughs> it's like he made these great movies, which most people can't do. And he's going to keep wanting to make things. You can't just keep comparing it to these movies that he made that everybody loves. That's just insane. Um, so I've done a lot of talking. How about you talk a little bit about the behind the scenes of this? Because I'm sure you read about it and learned about it. I so did. Tell, talk about how this came to be and what, what it is. I'm, I'm it is. It, it's interesting. It's quite interesting because the, there are two separate tracks going on. So there's the track that we've been following, which is Coppola and his financial troubles. And then there's the tract of Paramount really wants a third Godfather movie because you know what? That's money in the bank. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is. We make Godfather 3. We're going to make money. So, you know, can we get Coppola back? He doesn't want to do it. Well, what if we get like Sylvester Stallone to write and direct Godfather 3? <laughs> Which that was, I don't know how far that got, but that, those were conversations that were had. Oh, wow. That would have been so good. Like not at all good in the way that we I mean good but like I would have really enjoyed whatever yeah. the hell that would have been <laughs> and uh Paramount which you know the Hollywood industry changed as the Godfather was being made and then it changed in the late 70s when Spielberg started making 100 million dollar movies and then it changed again in the 80s when the execs figured out how to make money without trusting the uh, uh, film school artistic kids. And Paramount uh, had a president or production chief, Frank Mancuso, who really wanted to have a Godfather three and uh, not to be overly cynical about his motivations, but he did, was aware that Godfather three would be money in the bank. So, so kind of whatever, but he wanted it to be good. And they went through so many versions, hiring so many different writers. They hired Mario Puzo back to just come up with something. And he came up with a ridiculous thing. All the versions of The Godfather 3 throughout the 1980s. And this is very interesting because movies changed in the 80s because the action picture really came into being. There weren't yeah. really many like action movies the way we think of them now and the way you think of them like like Die Hard, RoboCop, Lethal Weapon. That didn't happen until the 80s. 
So there are these scripts that wanted God to turn Godfather 3 into an action movie about <laughs> very 80s stuff. Like it would be about Michael's son getting involved with a drug cartel yeah. and the CIA <laughs> and the Contras. <laughs> like one had, it's my, and they all focus on Michael's son. Michael's so it sounds son like was, they're trying to do like a Miami Vice thing or like that kind of, yeah, the stuff that was popular in the 80s. Yeah, I'm surprised that I didn't read about Michael Mann being roped into this. But yeah, it was like <laughs> one that was most, the most ridiculous one was that Michael's son like is the head of the family and he's hired by the CIA to go down to Central America and assassinate a Central American <laughs> dictator. <laughs> so it's almost like a Tom Clancy thing, like a clear yeah, present like, danger or. <laughs> like, and it's like all very eighties, like the eighties were like drugs and corporations South America, <laughs> South American drug cartels, and like, you know, the Iran Contra, the intrigue of all that. And they were trying to get that into a Godfather movie. Mario Puzo wrote one where instead of Michael's son, it focused on Sonny's illegitimate son, mm. but still getting involved with fucking drug cartels in South America. <laughs> and that's the one that made it to Coppola. He read it. He I mean, who knows if it's true, but Talia Shire says he threw the script into the fire. <laughs> he just happened to have a fire going. <laughs> so that's the yeah. Paramount track. Then the track we've been following, Coppola has his money troubles, and then he finally kind of worked his way out at the end of the 80s and then does uh, New York stories, a little short, like, okay, what's next? What's next is a lawsuit from... Someone that says, you owe me more money. The <laughs> Who person, was that? Uh, someone named Singer, Jack Singer, I think. For what? It's the person that he sold Zoetrope Studios to, who was an oh. investor. He invested in Zoetrope Studios. When it all went bust, Coppola sold it to him. Coppola understood it as, by selling you the studio, I have paid back your investment. So I wash my hands of this and move on. And that guy was like, no, you sold me the studio because you needed money. I still need my money back that I put into this to begin with. Coppola's like, no, we're going to court. And they go to court and the court is leaning very much towards the other guy, the other guy with interest. So now Coppola owes this guy $8 million dollars. Time and to make Godfather 3. <laughs> the phone ring, phone rings like, hey, it's our annual call to ask you to make Godfather 3. Coppola says, yes, but I have to do it my way. It's, you know, <laughs> very Coppola, I do it my way. Frank Mancuso, understanding people are going to see Godfather 3 no matter what. So yeah, do it your way. Write it with Mario Puzo. Don't write Mario Puzo, cast whoever. It's your it's your show. It was interesting reading about the casting of this movie because yeah, he really wanted Robert Duvall to come back, you know. And Robert Duvall wanted too much money. He I think he wanted to get paid as much as like Al Pacino. And they're like, we can't afford that. So he was like, then I'm not coming back. You have to get someone else and they did they got george hamilton <laughs> that is interesting and it's uh, you can understand it from both sides 
Yeah. Because like Godfather three is greenlit. No one is attached to it. So he's got to get back Al Pacino. He's got to get back Diane Keaton and Robert Duvall. Al Pacino and Diane Keaton both get something like $5 million. Yeah. Robert Duvall's going to get 1.5 million. And he's like, Hey, I'm fucking Robert Duvall. Like what's going on? <laughs> and there wasn't a lot for his character to do in Coppola's script. And so Coppola yeah. thought, well, I'll fix it by cutting back his character to make it the character, the role, you know, fit the salary. Instead yeah. of giving Robert du- the great Robert Duvall more to do, he gave him less to do. And then Robert Duvall said, no, I'm out. <laughs> and then the casting of, of how we got Sofia Coppola is really interesting because it started with uh, a lady named Rebecca Schaefer who was sort of like a rising talent. She, um, but she was then brutally murdered by a stalking obsessed fan. Yikes. And so that didn't work out. Um, Really sad, real crazy. Then they were gonna go with like Madonna, but then they were like, she's too old, Julia Roberts. Uh, And then finally it settled with Winona Ryder who at the time was also a rising star. She had just done before this Beetlejuice, Heathers, right? Like she's just starting out. And yeah, this is like uh, uh, Winona forever period. <laughs> or even before that, I think, like right before that, because this movie is 89, 90? Made um, in 89, released in 90. And uh, re- supposedly Winona Ryder kind of has a breakdown on the set or something, can't handle the stress of it. What I read was that she had just finished filming whatever movie mermaids i think yeah and then her and johnny depp fly to rome and then it's her first day of shooting and she and there's like two days lag time between her stopping her finishing one movie and starting this one and then she just physically cannot get out of bed and she had like officially like the medical ruling was she had a breakdown she was just exhausted but it's weird he wouldn't be like, okay, rest a day and then let's make the thing instead of just being like, no, you're done. Um, but anyways, according to Coppola, he had a week to cast the role and was just like, fuck it. I'll cast my daughter. She's been in some of my movies. Be She can be in this movie. <laughs> Which then becomes the biggest source of um, critique, I think, for this movie, which we'll definitely go into. Um but she's cast, you know, never really acted before like this. Like she had, like we've seen her in other couple of things, but it's barely been like a scene. Like I think the most was maybe Rumblefish as the little yeah. sister where we see her in a few scenes, but again, not a lot where she is literally the female lead of this movie. <laughs> and they just do it. They make the movie with her. So like, I guess what, what, like, there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, well, so where do you want to I mean, the, down? the Sophia in the room. Let's just talk I, about let's that. Let's start just with get that. that so oh. she, uh, reading about it, one of, I mean, though Coppola did have pretty much creative control, he did have a time limit. Like they called him in 89. They're like, all right, it's like the start of 89 write the script you have like six weeks and then we're going to shoot the movie in the end of 89 beginning of 90 and then this has to be done by christmas 1990 
So he did have these time constraints, which I think stressed him out then when your lead actress doesn't physically can't uh, can't play the role. And then that just triggered, I don't know, he's just like, well, like like safety, like family safety. And <laughs> hearing or reading about Sofia Coppola's understanding, like uh, she was on vacation from college, goes to you know spend time with her family because they're shooting a movie in Rome. And she's in her hotel room. She gets out of the shower. There's a frantic knock on the door. And it's uh, like a PA. It's an assistant who's like, you need to get dressed and come down to the set immediately. Like she's <laughs> the vice president. Like we, like she's LBJ, <laughs> you know, being sworn in on, the, on an airplane. <laughs> and then she was in the movie. And the other choices <laughs> were like the last minute choices. Like we got a recast in a week where Loris San Giacomo and... Annabella Sciorra. Oh, who would have both been so good? They would have been good. And Why so, didn't they go with them? <laughs> so then what happens is, and it's like, I think it's just Coppola's mentality, like his the stresses he was experiencing. So then what he does by casting his non-professional, non-professional actress daughter is then he rewrites her part to make it smaller and like tw- uh, tweak some tweak some of the dialogue, and I think yeah. that is a big flaw in this movie. Like I think, I mean, she's a non an eighteen year old non professional actress who's literally thrown into this role on like a day's notice, a week's notice. <laughs> so like that, y- you can only expect so much. But then yeah. like her dialogue also Mary's dialogue doesn't really help like we said like this was sort of like the thorn in every critic's side was her performance like people were so mean about it at the time and I agree that's like it's not her fault she was dropped like she didn't even really want to be in this (laughs) she was just sort of like okay dad I'll be in your movie sure and so like she did I think the best she could it definitely and it's like you're having non-professional acting against Al Pacino and Andy Garcia, and Diane Keaton, and like the great professional actors, you know, of the time. Yeah, even it's, like, um, it's just gonna not hold up against that. Like you're gonna have these scenes where there's gonna definitely be someone who can't kind of meet these other people at the table, and it's not her fault. She's not a trained actor, but these other people are. Yeah, like she's out of her league. Like, well, yeah, she doesn't even play the sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it's mean, like, would you be able to play in the Super Bowl tomorrow, AJ? If you've yeah. never learned football and you've never played it and you're just dumped <laughs> on the field, like, and everyone's going to be like, that guy's the worst. He ruined the game. It's like, it, it's not your fault. So people talk about, yeah, like her, like that her dialogue is bad or acting is bad. I think the character I agree wasn't as well written, maybe because of these rushed rewrites. Um, on the commentary, even Coppola points out that sometimes she couldn't hide her California speak. Oh she, man. Because well, she has Sophia is 100% California girl, man. And <laughs> she like, has yeah. that kind of valley girl way of speaking, especially the one part where she's upset because Michael's like, you can't see your cousin. And she, she goes, no, dad, no, yeah. <laughs> and runs away. And that's when not her she, fault. That's how she talks. And she's not she, an actor. Yeah, so she, she didn't have talks. didn't have a fucking <laughs> dialogue coach, you know? Uh, yeah. When she gives the, the uh, archbishop the check for... A hundred million dollars uh, on behalf of the 
Vito Corleone Foundation. <laughs> and it's like, it's cute that her California accent yeah. slips in. What's good is I feel like maybe, I don't know if she was wanting to still be an actress, but I think this movie made it so we now have the great films directed by Sofia Coppola. Yeah. Or when she was in things after this, like that Spike Jones Chemical Brothers video or Phantom Menace, she doesn't talk. She just, you know, looks interesting. Yeah, and what's great is that, like, there are people that defend, like, when we, like, the Siskel and Ebert episode about this, uh, they, like, I think Roger Ebert kind of defends that he thinks that she actually works in the movie, that her innocence or whatever, being in a professional adds to the character. Yeah, that uh, Ebert was thought she was actually a good fit for the movie. Yeah, because the fact that Sofia Coppola is lost fits with how Mary Corleone is lost, not really understanding, thinking that she knows what is happening with her dad, with Vincent, but not really understanding <laughs> what is going on and the dangers at, at play. And I think it's funny, too, how the reality mirrors the plot in this movie, too, where... Yeah, she's kind of thrown into this this family, this situation that she doesn't really know, that she didn't really know she was going to be a part of. And then she is sacrificed at the end of the movie. And in reality, she was the one sacrificed in all the reviews. She was the one that everyone went after. She got the bigger hit over Coppola. Coppola, if Coppola was Michael Corleone and the critics are trying to go after him, she got in the crossfire and she's the one who died. <laughs> yeah, like really. And I mean, I'm glad it didn't, you know, I'm glad it didn't like mess her up. Um, I mean, I'm sure it did have an effect on her. And, you know, she didn't really do like she was in like get yeah, the Spike Jones music video. Virgin Suicides happened in 1999. Yeah. So but, not uh, too long after this, only 10 years, nine yeah. years. But uh, uh, like uh, the the Star Wars kid, Jake Lloyd. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone hated him because they didn't like Phantom Menace, so they blamed the kid in the movie. Yeah. And I saw some interview with him from probably like 10 years ago now. And it like, yeah, that guy is not well adjusted. He's got problems. And you know what? That not surprised. Yeah. Bowling. Not surprised it's, from uh, all the like... shit that a 10-year-old kid caught. 18, yeah. you know, 18 not, you know, you still have a lot of maturing to do at 18. Yeah, it's bowling. Um, I'm sure Sophia Coppola was very sad <laughs> by hearing everyone talk about how terrible she was. And and also what's really funny is a lot of these critics accused Coppola, Francis Coppola, of nepotism for casting her. And it's like, have you seen any other Francis Ford Coppola movie? His dad does the music. His sister's in the movies. Like it's always, he's family's always so important to him. So you're now accusing of nepotism here like he's always like, like two years yeah. before this, he directed the thing Sophia wrote. Like that's he just lugs his family and wants his family around. Like his wife shot all the footage used in Hearts of Darkness. Like it's clearly always been a family thing. So it's it's like to go after him for that because of Sophia is dumb. Yeah, because and he it's clearly always been a part of his filmmaking. And he's clearly um, it comes from. I know that it comes from a like a love of his family, just wanting to like be around them and like, hey, like let's all do this together. And I don't think he faults other people for doing that because I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed in the last couple of movies we've watched, it always uh, production design, art direction by Dean Tavalaris 
in the last couple ones, it said Dean and Alex Tavalaris. <laughs> uh, Dean, Dean Tavalaris's brother is also now doing uh, production design, art, art direction for Coppola's movies. Yeah. And Coppola's probably thinks that is great that Dean brought his brother along. Siskel and Ebert acknowledge like she's not a professional actress. Ebert thinks it works more than than Siskel does. Leonard Malton's review uh, in his movie guide is basically, you know, it's not great. It's good, despite the near fatal flaw of casting Sofia Coppola. Uh, but other reviews were really like really mean, uh, not just about her performance, but then also about like her looks, you know, that she's really? not like that she's not like sexy enough to pull off the role, Man. you know, like seducing her cousin. You don't see that anymore in reviews. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully we've learned that that's not appropriate. Yeah. That's just shit. That's just like so mean and unnecessary. It's just like to go after their looks and it's like, fuck you, man. Yeah. I didn't look at, I didn't look at what Razzie nominations this movie or she got. Cause I knew it would just make me angry. I agree that I don't fault her at all for it. And I wouldn't go after her. Like, I don't think it's her fault. I think it's definitely more Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola's fault. But at the same time, it seems like a stressful, like, I don't know what it's like to be, need an actress in a week or a, a matter of days and you're just like panicking and you're just like what the fuck <laughs> some people like you know nicholas cage can finish shooting uh like face off and then the next day start shooting con air like that literally like he got Is that true his, yeah he finished shooting i <laughs> forgot the actual order but he finished shooting one of those movies got on yeah, a plane face off first yeah face off and then he got on a plane Flew to the, you know, wherever they were filming Con Air, Las Vegas, started acting in it the next day. Bless his heart. Both great performances in two great movies. Yeah. Cousin, Nick, cousin Nicholas can do it. Uh, he's got that thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying that Nicholas Coppola should have played Mary Corleone. He should have got that part of the family. Well, <laughs> he, he would have done it. <laughs> he's never played a woman has he uh, he's, yeah let's do that um are we done with sophia are we done talking about it yeah yeah i think we've uh, okay. <laughs> said what needs to be said the other thing that uh, the kind of the bigger flaw for me with this movie was it just even though it's the same people it just doesn't look as good as the other two godfather movies or as good as other kind of bigger movies at the time it looks sort of cheap like the sets look kind of cheap it feels very stagey like the way the sets look it was it's weird because they shot it all in rome so that they, they even the new york stuff they shot on like stages and stuff in rome which is odd but you know if you want to be in rome longer i guess and i think the biggest one for me is there's no part of the movie at all that feels like 1979 it feels like 1989 Yes, like, it does. Like, like like the Al Pacino flat top spiky haircut. No one had a haircut like that in the 70s. And the way Diane Keaton looks just looked like they, it looks like Al Pacino and Diane Keaton just showed up and said, this is how I'm looking. This is what I'm wearing. I'm not going to change this. What I've <laughs> And it just feels, and even the way Garcia looks with this leather jacket and just like the way everyone's hair is, it's a little floppy. It feels so early 90s. It feels so late 80s. Like it doesn't, feel like they try like like think about this 
This is the same year that Goodfellas came out. And it takes place in the same era, like at the end of Goodfellas, it's the same era as this, like late 70s. And that feels, Goodfellas feels very like the 70s. This doesn't feel like it's a period piece at all. It, it really doesn't. I, uh, I should probably start looking at my notes now. <laughs> but what I've often said about this movie is that like Diane, Diane Keaton and Al Pacino finally look like themselves. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they find like Al Pacino looks like Al Pacino. Diane Keaton looks like Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton also looks like she did or she had her own people do her hair and wardrobe. And I mean, sure, because her hair in the first movie was ridiculous. But yeah. uh, she just looks like Diane Keaton. Like she's getting ready to just be Diane Keaton. And then after this, she's going to do some you know yogurt commercials or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, like like, and Al Pacino looks like the way he will in like Devil's Advocate and Sin of a Woman and Jack and Jill and everything that he does after. Like this outfits, it's just like in his hair. Is this the hair? Like you couldn't change his hair. Like it's such a weird haircut for the period that this is supposed to take place. It really in. is because yeah, it's it, a it's a flat the flat top. It's almost it's like in the same style as like like Schwarzenegger's Terminator Two flat top like. Just but like if up, it was, it's like it's like a few flat. lightning bolts away from the vanilla ice haircut. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The shot in '89, released in '90, '89-'90, may as well just be the '90s. It's set in '79, but it really feels like the late '80s, early '90s, and the concerns yeah. of the movie, the corporate corporations, conglomerates. Uh, the Vatican Bank stuff, which had recently happened at the time, it it all just feels like the concerns of the 80s. And that makes it feel <laughs> modern, even though it's set in 79, it's set yeah. uh, 11 years before. It makes it feel like modern day. And I think that demythologizes the movie. The first two movies are very much 1940s. Yeah. and 50s and like the fashions the clothes the cars yeah you know, there's not a lot I don't remember a lot of footage of even though there are outside scenes of like cars the fashion is just late 80s early 90s fashion there's time when Sophia she goes to meet Vincent and then they make sexy pasta together <laughs> and she's the way she's dressed and Sophia's thing was fashion she was into fashion before she was directing movies she was designing uh you know clothes and, and bags and she just looks like yeah that looks like a something that uh you know a trendy hip 18 year old would wear in 1989 yeah it's very weird like the lack of detail that is in every Coppola movie before this is like it's just very and maybe it's due because it's been rushed but like even in like Tucker and like Peggy Sue got married and like literally everything we've done, every single movie we've done before this has such detail, like maybe not the obsessive detail in Apocalypse Now and like the French plantation scene where he's planning all the food and making sure the food is the right kind of food, like maybe not to the obsessive level, but it just like for a person who excelled at making great detailed period pieces, mostly, you know, like outsiders. Yeah, nearly every with conversation and life without Zoe being the exceptions. Everything he did was a period piece. But even like in the conversation, 
like the weird little place where he works that that like kind of like where all the the sound guys hang out like all the details of what's hanging on the wall and stuff it feels very lived in it feels very real and even in life with zoe it's like i believe that's where that little kid lives in this fancy apartment look at this big party but in this it just feels like they didn't think about it <laughs> or just like i don't know it's just some apartment i don't know it's the 70s i guess but we're not gonna like the only touch that feels like the 70s which maybe was sophia's idea and it feels very strange is that one elvis costello song that plays yes like the miracle man from uh, my aim is true like that feel like it's playing in a scene with her and andy garcia and you're like well that's weird <laughs> like, that's, that's weird. It, it's weird because it's like <laughs> there's there's a few things with that scene it's like one like there's the elvis costello song and you're like what Mu <laughs> like music like pop contemporary music in the godfather movie i mean and granted that song's from 77 so yeah it is so like they could have been listening to it the only thing. <laughs> and then it's like the kids are listening to it you know the younger yeah. generation corleones and then uh and then it's you know 18 year old Sophia Mary Coppola making out with her first cousin and <laughs> yeah a lot of stuff do you really think that in 70 whatever these characters would be listening to Elvis Costello I don't think they're cool enough to I think I they'd mean, be maybe, like disco or something I don't I don't buy it <laughs> oh you're right Elvis Costello Mary I like, feel like, like Mary like, might like, would, like Andy Garcia's character wouldn't be listening to Elvis. No, Andy so, Garcia's like, character would not be, listen like, to pop music, uh, yeah. modern music. I think Sophia Mary might, maybe she might he, have an Elvis Costello record, but that wouldn't be like her jam. She would be at. So this is eighty. Studio Fifty Four would be happening, right? Like maybe yeah, disco. Like maybe Blondie is like the edgiest thing that these people maybe would be like. This is like normal people, or not normal people, but like these gangster people. But they're not like cool counterculture people, which in my mind was sort of what Elvis Costello was like back way back then. Like that he was more like for the cool kids. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe like I wasn't around then. Maybe it was more mainstream than I, I think. But it just feels strange. It's very strange when that song shows up. The other thing worth pointing out is I didn't realize it because it's been a while since I did the first two that the very famous line of just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in is from this movie. Yeah. For some reason, I thought we saw that already and it was in like part two or something. And like that iconic line, which is one of the most famous lines from The Godfathers, is from part three. I didn't know that. <laughs> I just didn't think I, uh, about it. You know, I forget. I, I forget that it's from this movie because it's it's a famous Michael Corleone line. Well, it must be from Godfather, from two, the Godfather, right? <laughs> or two, because people don't acknowledge three. And uh, and of course, uh, it's fresh in my mind because I've been rewatching The Sopranos and seeing Steve Van Zant do that line to amuse Tony Soprano, and his it's, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Um, the other thing that was interesting, which I totally didn't know, was that Mama Scorsese's in this movie. Yes, I love that. She, she had a good uh, year in 1990 in this and Goodfellas. You're in the Goodfell two iconic gangster films. Yeah, she has an incredible, like her scene in Goodfellas, because we got to talk about Scorsese. We'll talk about The Irishman later. I know we will. 
her scene in Goodfellas is fucking amazing. She's got the painting with the man in the boat with the dogs. One dog goes one way, one dog goes the other <laughs> way. And this guy, he says, hey, what do you want from me? So she's in like the the two gangster movies, the two like big mafia movies of this of the same year and then both of the opposite ends of the spectrum of like the the like don't take this don't take this uh uh literally this is like an opera it's an exaggeration you know this it yeah and there's a fucking opera in the movie the coppola godfather and then in the down and dirty workaday gangsters about the guys that Michael Corleone and Vincent Mancini don't even think about. You know, it's about the guys in Vincent's crew who are like, oh, his cousin girlfriend is here again. <laughs> like that's who Goodfellas is about. And, <laughs> and Mama Scorsese's in both of them. Yeah. And she's good. She is she's good. good. She's a natural. Like, and that means she was, is she the only actor in two movies nominated for best picture in 1990? Oh. Uh, that- uh, let's just say yes. I, I looked over the <laughs> I looked over the ninety Oscars earlier, but I did not take. We'll that get into, into it. But she's she's got to be the only one in both, so that she's like that's important. You know that she must have she must have been. That means she's more got more nominations for Best Picture than her son Marty because she was. Yeah. <laughs> and in my guess, that is like just a friend of a friend being like, hey. Can I put your mom in this movie? Or maybe Marty hung out on the set and they're like, hey, come hang out. Come on. Yeah, put your mom scene, in just one scene. She doesn't do much. Um, in, in, in her scene, uh, she and an, uh, another old lady, they're in you know the old neighborhood where uh, Vincent is showing Mary, like that's Jenko olive oil where you know uh, young Robert De Niro got his, got his start. And it is the same street, the same set. And then uh, Mama Scorsese walks by and she knows Vincent and is like, oh, the neighborhood now, you have to do something about it. Like the way the way that uh, someone would go to young Vito Corleone and be like, I, I need help or like, you need to do something about this. And like, he would do it. Yeah. yeah. And her real name, by the way, is Catherine Scorsese, but it's more fun to call her Mama Scorsese. She has a good filmography. She's only she's in 17 movies. She's in her son's movies. Who's that knocking at my door? Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, King of Comedy, After Hours, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Age of Innocence, Casino. <laughs> but then she's in Easy Money, the Roddy Dangerfield movie. Which is amazing. The Muppets take Manhattan. Oh yes. Brian De Palma's Wise Guys, another kind of <laughs> friend of that, yeah, you know, the family. Moonstruck. She's in the movie, uh, movie. Ch- China Girl, the Abel Ferrera movie. Oh okay. And then uh, in Godfather Three, so like that's a pretty good. That's a pretty that, perfect filmography. That's yeah, that like good. rivals. That rivals John Ratzenberg's filmography. Empire Strikes Back, Toy Story. <laughs> all the all the Pixar movies, all the greatest <laughs> animated movies ever made. <laughs> I don't think it's a flaw, but I think one of the big things, and you know, this uh, we can this will bleed into the director's cut as well. That like people rejected this movie as a Godfather movie is that. Like Michael, the character of Michael 
is different and the audience is you root for a character or you just follow a character. I'm not really rooting for Travis Bickle, but I'm following him. And yeah, yeah I want him to, you know, rescue this 12 year old from a life of prostitution. Uh, but then he does it and, you know, the, like this fucking horrible, violent way that probably traumatized <laughs> her more than being a 12 year old <laughs> prostitute. And like, uh, what? And like, you know, hey, that's the point of the movie, you know? You're just following this guy. You're not really supposed to root for Travis Bickle or yeah. for uh, uh, Rupert Pupkin in yeah. King of Comedy. <clears throat> yeah. But in, like, part one, you're, you're, like, rooting for Michael even as he's becoming, you know, this uh, calculating, cold mafioso that his father never wanted him to be, that he never thought he would be. You want him to save his family and triumph over his enemies and he does and in part two he is this cold calculating guy who is ruining his family like the the familial close bonds yeah but you still want him to win you still want him to triumph over his enemies and he kind of like he does but then he kills his brother and then in this one it's he is an old man, <laughs> right? He's not as old Tired. as he, he's not as old as he is in in yeah, at the at the very end of the movie, but yeah, he's old. He's diabetic. He has a diabetic stroke at one point. That's not something that you want like your hero to do. You when like people that like look up to the Godfather and the Corleones and like yeah, like that's how I model my my life my approach to business yeah. after like uh, this guy that's <laughs> has a diabetic stroke that cries when his uh one of his mentors dies and he's like why were you so loved and i was so hated like why did that how did i do it wrong who like has a breakdown in confession who like needs like he becomes physically weak because he's old and he's like oh like tearing at his collar like i need some I need some orange juice, like something sweet, <laughs> please. Yeah. Like it, it's like that Chris Rock bit of, uh, you know, Superman can't walk now. Like how fucked up is that? What's next? Is Aquaman going to drown in the tub? Has Hulk got gout? <laughs> like Michael Corleone, diabetic and having a stroke and crying now. Like people didn't, I think people weren't prepared to see that. They didn't want to see that. And, yeah. then, and then he doesn't really win at the end like his daughter no. dies in front of him he screams in agony and cries and then he dies old and alone with a dog you know sniffing at him <laughs> and like that's the point that's what Coppola wanted to make is hey everybody mafia's bad okay <laughs> like that's what Coppola's been trying to say with the whole movies and then he's like tired of trying to subtly get around that so he's just going to flatly state it as much as he can yeah and it works for the movie i do think it works i think the movie is good yeah but i think people didn't want to see that they wanted for like a better term an action movie where michael comes back and kills everyone again like uh clint eastwood at the end of unforgiven he's like all right i have to be a badass again and he kills everybody people that want that the same year El Pacino made Dick Tracy and he plays big boy Caprice in that's also 1990 Warren Beatty's masterpiece Dick Tracy and there you can see Pacino play the head of a of a of a gang a gangster and he's killing people and he's tough and he's not crying 
and he's not an old man. He's tough. So watch Dick Tracy if that's what you want. <laughs> Same year, 1990. <laughs> All right. So moving on to the director's cut, the like unexpected director's cut. The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. Mario Puzo's The Godfather, <laughs> pause for the comma, Coda, colon, The Death of Michael Corleone. <laughs> and this is Coppola, is a recent uh, spat of re-editing movies. This is, was his pandemic project, though I think this came out just before... No, uh, released in December 2020. So yeah, this was a pandemic project for him. Uh, yeah, re-editing his, his movies and putting them out on DVD, Blu-ray streaming and a different take. Uh, and we had the Godfather, a different version of Godfather 3, which is shorter, significantly shorter than most director's cuts, which are longer. Zodiac and Godfather coda death of michael corleone being the exceptions and it's uh it's an interesting watch watching it right after you watch godfather 3 i'm not sure what experience you would have if you watch this on its own like you know 20 years after you watch godfather 3 because that's the one people watch the least <laughs> well we can talk about the changes but i like when I watched it, it kind of reminded me, it reminded me of Apocalypse Now, the final cut, where I was just sort of like, this feels pointless. I don't even really know what's different, really. It's so slight that like it just feels like a cash grab. <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. Um, I thought that a lot of the cuts, which I picked up on probably because I watched them so recently together, I thought a lot of them worked. And... Uh, it reminded me of the uh, Outsiders theatrical and then complete novel versions where he tweaked some stuff and and it worked. Uh, the biggest, but a lot of the, uh, the, there's no like big alternate ending. There's no like new footage really. He moves some scenes around and trims a lot of stuff. He cut a lot of stuff out. This one's like two hours, 37 minutes with credits. Yeah, uh, theatrical is two hours 50. Instead of uh, starting out with shots of the abandoned Corleone mansion on Lake Tahoe, this uh, just starts out with uh, a scene of the uh, like evil Vatican archbishop talking to Michael Corleone, telling him his problems and how he needs the Corleone family. Like the Vatican bank is missing all his money and michael corleone says he'll uh he'll donate he'll give the bank this much money but he wants control of the international immobiliare uh company and then it cuts to cuts right to the party with don yeah. novello and talia shire singing <laughs> and, and then we have that party scene and i think that works a lot better because it it starts out like an, an homage to like Godfather. I mean, it's not really an homage when it's the same. It's, it's mirrors the, the beginning of the Godfather. Which yeah, mirrors the beginning of the Godfather, where it's someone 
making a speech asking a favor of Michael of Don Corleone. And then Michael Corleone like says, okay. And then, hey, you got this award. You got the St. Sebastian Award. We don't see the ceremony in the church at all. But it makes it seem a lot more just business. Hey, I have a problem. And I'm I'm a bishop. Okay, I'll give you money. You give me this award. And I'm buying my redemption. So it seems like Michael is like still cold and calculating and thinking like he can buy his redemption. And for me, that makes his journey to trying to get an honest, earnest redemption more effective instead of beginning with like, oh, he's been trying to do this the whole time that we haven't been with him. He's already been giving all this money to people. And that first thing is... That first scene is in the movie in part three. They just he's moved it to the beginning. Of yeah, it version. comes forty minutes into the theatrical <laughs> version. But it, it makes sense here because it kind of sets up. Then it makes you understand better kind of what his whole plan with the Vatican is. So that and everyone's good. introductions in the party are much more effective as first time meetings than seeing them watch Michael get this ceremony because there's the pan of who is in the uh, the pews of the mm-hmm. church and there's Kay and you know Mary and her brother and like uh, Joey Zaza comes in late and people are like this guy and then you see it all again much more effectively so the first time you see Joey Zaza is when he just shows up and like hey I'm singing the song <laughs> and everyone stops like oh you're here the disgust of like him being at you know here <laughs> is much more effective if that is the first time we meet him. And I, I know everything about his character and his relationship with the Corleones from that meeting first. And they, they, uh, this version also cuts down a lot of more of Sophia's performance. It cuts out the more Valley Girl California speak is all cut out. Like yeah, the ones he could cut out, like the, the big, the no, dad, that whole part's cut out. Um, and and it's more effective too. It's not just like, oh, like this perform, like oh, this performance was bad. Let's cut it. It's there's a scene where uh, the Vatican Bank Council holds a press conference and like we're giving our company to Michael Corleone, and then someone shouts in the audience like he's a gangster and in casinos <laughs> and all this bad shit. And he then says the- he has a map of Sicily on his face. Yeah. <laughs> Which in plot offensive, that's offensive to me and my Sicilian roots, but that means gangster because they just means like uh, you're a gangster okay. from Sicily. Map of Sicily on his face. Um, in the theatrical version, then it cuts to a close-up of Mary and talking to her dad and they're on a balcony and she says like, dad, Anthony says, I'm just a front, that you're, I'm just a way for you to pull the strings and i'm just trying to mimic her valley girl (laughs) her valley girl speak and the dialogue that she's given it's like is that true dad and then he says some stuff to her and then he says like like look this this is real you this is legitimate anything with you is legitimate and then it cuts like her dialogue and it just goes from hey this is this is bad. You have the mark of Sicily on your face to that. And then a close up of her, of Mary at that press conference being like, huh? And then cut to him telling her, 
no, this is real. This is real. You're legitimate. Anything involving you is legitimate. That is much more effective. It's just, and it's much more efficient. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I noticed was the, um, the plan when, when, when uh, Michael is talking to um, Vincent about the plan of how he can infiltrate Eli Wallet's um, like family. And in this version, it intercuts with then with Vincent meeting with Eli Wallet. Whereas I think before it has the one scene and then the unseen mm-hmm. right afterwards is when it cuts back and forth, like hearing the plan and then seeing the plan in action, which also is much more effective and kind of a more modern way of doing that scene. And I thought that was good. Um, and what else, other than the end, what else did you notice that was different? Uh, other scenes, so there's a scene where um, Don Tomasino, Michael's mentor, the guy that looked after him when he went to Sicily in the first movie, um, he is murdered by the assassin hired to kill Michael. And then Michael in the theatrical version uh, is sitting by his casket and he weeps and has this speech about like, how were you so loved and I so hated? Like, you know, Lord, give me one, like give me another chance to redeem myself. That whole scene is cut and it's just him sitting sad by the uh the dialogue is cut it's just him sitting sad by the coffin it's just other little little stuff that i couldn't really i noticed but i couldn't i could it'd be too much to like name like the beginnings of scenes are trimmed and the ends of scenes are trimmed and you don't really notice even though i watched them practically back to back it was hard for me to tell exactly I get it. It's it's just to me, it's so slight that I'm not going to get rid of my DVD of this and buy the Blu-ray. I'm fine with the original movie. <laughs> like it doesn't really matter to me. Same with Apocalypse Now. Just like, like the, for me, The Outsiders is the one where it was so different that it is like a different movie. You know, where this just feels like yeah, like a tightened up version of the same thing, and it just kind of like, to me, it just feels so slight. Except yeah. for the end which I think is dumb. I think the new ending doesn't make any sense because basically it just ends on the steps of the opera and then that's the, you don't have him die. Despite so the fact that it's called the death of Michael Corleone, you never see that happen. Unless twist. they mean the emotional death of his daughter dying is now what it is. Yeah, so the theatrical version ends with the death of his daughter then there's a montage of him yeah. uh, dancing with all the women he's disappointed yeah. in his life. He dances yeah. with Mary, he dances mm-hmm. with Kay, he dances with Apollonia, and then it cuts to him, close, super tight close-up of Al Pacino in this old age makeup that I'm not sure if it works. And he's wearing a hat and his hair is yeah. stringy and poking out and he puts on sunglasses and then he sits back in a chair and he's holding an orange. So something bad is going to happen because bad stuff always happens when people eat oranges in The Godfather and also in The Sopranos. <laughs> and then he uh, cut to a wide shot of him and his hand drops out of the chair. He drops the orange and you're like, oh, he died. And then just to be sure, he collapses out of the chair onto the ground. And then the dog comes up and sniffs him. That's the end of Godfather 3. And this one, he uh, screamed. He is holding his dead daughter. He screams. There's a, a flashback to him dancing with her. 
And then it cuts to super tight close up of him in a questionable old age makeup. He puts on sunglasses, fade to black. And then this text comes on the screen and it says, did I write it down? No, I didn't because it's not really that, that memorable. But it's like when uh, an Italian says, Chen Ani, you know, for a hundred years, it means for a hundred years. And a Sicilian never forgets. End of Godfather Coda. So meaning like he will always remember the death of his daughter? Yeah, that, meaning yeah, that yeah, like he is like his death <laughs> is a living death that he will have to live like he lives with that he can never forget. For and everyone wished him for a hundred years, may you live a hundred years after this. And so, and he's still alive, but he has to live with everything, with all the tragedy that he has inflicted on the people that he loved and cared about. Now he just has to live with it and stew with it. And that is his death. And that is, I think, conveyed much more effectively in. Martin Scorsese is the Irishman. <laughs> Here we go. What, how, how so? Tell me. So in Martin Scorsese is the Irishman. Throughout the movie, whenever you meet someone, there's a little text that pops up that's like the name of the person and then how, when and how they died. Like this person, like shot in the face five times in 1995. <laughs> or like this person... <laughs> you know shot in the back uh, in 1981 this person you know their car blew up 1985 this person well liked by all died a natural death <laughs> and the ending of goodfellas was that you know uh, the di- though the dialogue that the monologue that ray liotta as henry hill says is i get to live the rest of my life like a like a schnook an average nobody and he's just in the you know prefab house getting his newspaper like hey everybody like my life sucks now when the the point is like the point is he no he's he's not right that's the final line of the movie but he's alive he lived yay yeah. for you henry hill you fucking <laughs> lived through this how did you do that no you idiot you're alive do you know how lucky you are the, uh, <laughs> and the uh, the other end of that in the Irishman is he lives. Everyone else, like we see, we even if we meet them only for a, a second, we see we get to read about how horribly they were murdered. Yeah, and Frank Sheeran, Robert De Niro's The Irishman lives, and he dies a natural death. But we see his old age and how he just has to live with knowing that. Like he disappointed the people he loved the most. He killed his best friend, his daughter, who knows exactly what he is. Doesn't have like, isn't like, oh, I think my dad's in the mafia, like Mary Corleone. Like maybe there's something up, maybe there's something going on. Like she knows exactly what kind of horrible murderer he is and hates him and won't talk to him. Played wonderfully and silently by Anna Paquin. He spends like the last bits of that movie just trying to like communicate with her and he just has to just has to be alone and tell you know his healthcare worker like oh like I knew I knew uh, you know Jimmy Hoffa and she's like who's that and he's just there alone <laughs> and in the still of the night plays and it's like 
well, he lived, yay, but uh, that's that's not how you want to spend the final years of your life. Yeah. And that is what Coppola, I think, meant to get across with the original ending of Godfather 3 and then get across with the text of this coda, which yeah. works on like an intellectual level. Like, oh, okay, he had this horrible living death. You know, where he, like, there's there was no point to him yeah. being alive, but he was. And he, so he just had to live with the pain he inflicted. And I understand that intellectually, but I don't feel it emotionally. Yeah. yeah. The I way agree. I did with The Irishman. <laughs> um, it's worth noting that there was going to be a part four at some point talked about that... Uh, was going to be just about Andy Garcia's character in the 80s dealing with drug dealers. <laughs> but they never made it. It didn't happen. Um, that would have been interesting if uh, they did that. Um, and there's sort of another Godfather 3 called The Sicilian uh, directed uh, by Michael Cimino. And that was a book written by Mario Puzo that has characters from the godfather in the book but in the movie version they they took those characters out because they didn't have the rights that paramount had huh. so in a way the sicilian could also play as a godfather three tangentially sort of not really um <laughs> uh i really uh, just a few more things before we go into the oscars and awards i really love the part in this movie in both versions when they're watching the opera and there's a part of the opera when the guy bites the guy's ear and they cut to Andy Garcia smiling, being like, yeah, I did. <laughs> and I think um, it's funny <laughs> that James Caan's son in this movie is played by Andy Garcia and both James Caan and Andy Garcia, two of the non-Italians playing Italians. James Caan, of course, is Jewish. Andy Garcia is Cuban. But they work as Italian-Americans, sure. Yeah, well, it's like this was that time... When, and we're, we're kind of coming out of those times now. <laughs> we'll see if Anthony Ramos and um, the Puerto Ricans from West Side, the new West Side Story get parts in other movies. But where for the longest time, if you were uh, Hispanic, Latin, whatever, whatever they call us, and you wanted to act, okay, you're Italian. <laughs> you're Italian. No, you change your last name. You're Italian. And so Andy Garcia was this like weird, like his last name is Garcia. That to me, even though my name is not Garcia, it's Gonzalez. But Garcia was like the most Hispanic name he could get. The phone book was filled with, I'm not exaggerating, 10 pages of Garcia's. There was like seven pages of Gonzalez's and like 10 pages of Garcia's. But if you were Hispanic, then you weren't in movies or you were like a main, you were like a side character or you had to be in like American Me or like Blood In, Blood Out, <laughs> you know? But Andy Garcia was just like, just playing, just playing an average guy. And the fact, his last name, his skin didn't get into it. And it was like this magic thing. Like what? It was him. It was Eric Estrada and Andy Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> and it's worth noting, Andy Garcia is really good in this movie. He is so, like, there's yeah. a reason why he's famous. He's so charismatic. He's so handsome. Like, he is, and this is right after, like, he was on a good run for a long time. He did 8 Million Ways to Die, The Untouchables, which he's great in, Stand and Deliver, uh, Black Rain, and then you got Godfather 3. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stand and, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, 
Untouchables where he's playing another Italian. Yeah, that was the way in. The, that was the way into the movies. How much uh, of Ben the be the see the be having to do that, and then you see John Turturro playing like Hispanic people, <laughs> 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 which often happened. It was just like, well, I guess it works both ways. Andy Garcia is good, and he is charming, and he is supposed to be this amalgam of all the Corleones. Like he has Sonny's anger and Michael's Michael's smarts, his calculation, and Sonny's or and Fredo's warmth and i'm not sure that i think that gets across the least but i think that it's it it's kind of there just because uh andy garcia is this very likable charismatic person like i don't think he is seducing mary just to get a leg up in the mafia world i also want to point out that uh well one i think eli wallach earned honorary italian status from being in spaghetti westerns yeah yeah <laughs> he's another non-italian playing italian in the godfather movie well, uh, yeah you're right if, if he can do if he, he can play a mexican in the <laughs> yeah oh um, no, you're right he's he's a he's a polish too uh there you and go. hey like and <laughs> i i don't care it's always good good to see eli wallach in a movie <laughs> and he's also great in this and his scene his death scene is so good of him just happily eating these cannolis. Talia Shire poisons him with a cannoli. Godfather, <laughs> take the gun, uh, take the cannoli, leave the gun. Uh, she, t- and the other thing I wanted to mention before we get into our, uh, our, our, our denouement was that Talia Shire gets a big role in 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 this movie she's not just yeah. like the little sister connie she is now like part of michael's crew she's like the capo regime she's kind of controlling the action of the movie yeah. and michael doesn't want to is like no don't don't but she tells vincent to do the hit on Joey Zaza and she makes a poison cannoli for Eli Wallach to eat. And Eli Wallach uh, at the opera, he's like kind of suspicious. He's like, oh, you're so skinny. You, you eat it first. And she takes the tiniest bite of it. A bite that would not be convincing in real life. If you're like, I think this is poison. You eat it. And like, okay, I'll touch this to the bottom of my mouth. There you go. But it seems like it's implied that he eats like an entire box of cannolis. Like through this opera, he's like so into the music and he just seemed to slam in cannolis. <laughs> his death is hilarious. Eli Wallach, great actor, also very funny. No, he's his great. death is, uh, he eats the cannoli and she's watching him through opera glasses and he's yeah. just munching down. It's like, mm, like, all right, like act two, I'm going to break out my cannolis. And then he like, uh, 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 and he like, bugs out his teeth like he has like big mouse teeth yeah and like dies and it's a great moment it's it's great and it's kind of funny and and again if you're watching like like yeah like michael's gonna send people to fucking murder everyone with guns and then (laughs) talia shire kills someone with a cannoli and they die hilariously But yeah, I'm uh, glad that Talia Shire got like, and she's really good at playing this yeah. like tough version of Connie. 
she's a more ruthless gangster than Michael is in this movie. Like she is like the most like like she is basically doing what you wanted to see Michael do. Yeah. Get back at their enemies, the people that betrayed them. Yeah, she's awesome in this movie. All right, you want to talk about some Oscars and some Razzies? All right. Yeah, let's get into Let's do the Razzies the first because the okay. Razzies like it's just get let's get the painful one out of the way. So, Razzies 1991. Uh this movie wins two Razzies. Uh worst New star for Sofia Coppola and worst supporting actress for Sofia Coppola. Just to really rub it in, just to really rub yeah. salt yeah. in the wounds. Uh, if you ever listen to my other podcast, The World Is Wrong, uh, Andres Jones, my co-host, and I don't have nice things to say about <laughs> the Razzies. I feel they're bullies. I feel that they uh, are hateful bunch of jerks and unnecessary to point out like the things that are wrong in movies is childish and pointless but uh we'll talk I about mean, it here for a moment <laughs> yeah well and they view it like when i was a teenager and in college is like yeah the razzies these movies suck yeah bleh, rub it in <laughs> but uh then as i like well what do they nominate and I mean, in the modern era, they just nominate like sequels and Adam Sandler movies and sequels. Adam, Sa- Adam Sandler movies, sequels, <laughs> and then like a Dinesh D'Souza movie. So it's like, well, who? Okay. Dinesh D'Souza is this guy who makes uh, these like far right conspiracy movies. Uh, okay. But then, yeah, if you actually like look at the nominees, and it's like, well, okay, like I get it. Like you don't like Dances with Wolves, but Kevin Costner wins Worst Actor for. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's just like, so for <laughs> for 91, Sofia Coppola won, beating Julie Newmar for Ghosts Can't Do It. Don't know what that is. Roseanne Barr for Look Who's Talking To, Kim Cattrall in The Bonfire of the Vanities, and Ali Sheedy in Betsy's Wedding, which I thought was a movie that people liked. It's very weird. Kim and then for not terrible in Bonfire of the Vanities. And then for uh, Newcomer, uh, it, or for New Star, she beat out Leo Damien for Ghost Can't Do It, Carrie Otis for Wild Orchid, Ingrid Chavez for Graffiti Bridge, and Donald Trump for Ghost Can't Do It. But then Donald Trump wins this year for Worst Supporting Actor for Ghost and, Can't Do It. So there's some movie. I mean, he's Donald a winner, was, right? <laughs> for 19. I bet, you know what? I bet out of all these people, I bet he took it harder than Sofia Coppola. I bet he found out about this. And was fuming for months. <laughs> and he launched. He launched a thirty-year plan to destroy Ruin democracy. Yeah, because <laughs> he got won a Raspberry Award. So see, <laughs> the Raspberry Awards is why the world is in the state it is now. Thank you, not for nothing. Weird year. Worst picture. Ghost can't do it again. I don't know what that movie is. It's in with Bo Derek, beating out Graffiti Bridge, Bonfire of the Vanities, Rocky Five. Oh, it was a tie. Also winning The Adventures of Ford Fairline, the director directed by Rennie Harlan, a movie that I like. So fuck you, raspberries. Let's move on to the Oscars, the less the less mean or who knows. This movie was nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning none of them. Uh, the 91 Oscars was a pretty uh, all over the place one. Like the things that won. There was a lot. They kind of gave a, mo- a bunch of movies a bunch of different awards. But do you want to yeah, list off there, the awards it was nominated for before we kind of break it down? Yeah. So Godfather Three was nominated for 
Best Picture, Best uh, Supporting Actor for Andy Garcia, Best Director, Best Cinematography for Gordon Willis, Best Art Direction slash Set Direct dec uh, Decoration for Dean Tavolaris and Gary uh, Fettis, Best Editing for Barry Malkin, longtime Coppola collaborator, uh, Lisa uh, Fruchtman, Walter Murch, another longtime Coppola collaborator, and Best Original Song for the song Promise Me You'll Remember by Carmine Coppola, lyrics by John Bettis and performed by uh, the actor that plays Michael's uh, son in the movie, uh, yeah. which is a weird song because it's like, oh, the Godfather theme had words to it the whole time? I didn't know that. <laughs> and it ties into the themes of the movie? Huh. It's not the Harry Connick Jr. song that's in the end credits. That's not the one that's up for oh, the Oh, maybe it's, maybe it's that. It's probably that one. It's probably that I thought one. it was that song. <laughs> I could be wrong. I had I had tuned out by um, that point. So let's we'll end on best picture. Let's go through uh, song. So best music original song. The winner was sooner or later for Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy again. That song, of course, sung by Madonna. Great song. Music so lyrics by Sondheim. Like yeah, that, that one's Sondheim. gonna win. Yeah, but it did beat "Blaze of Glory" by John Bon Jovi for Young Guns Two, which is. The more long-lasting song. Yeah. <laughs> and you had Postcards from the Edge song I'm Checking Out by Shel Silverstein. And oh, then the Home okay. Alone song Somewhere in My Memory by John Williams and Leslie Bracus. Never knew there was a Home Alone song. But I... Uh, yeah, what song would that even be? I don't... I, I don't grew know. up to not yeah. like that movie, so... What? Uh, what? Yeah. Home Alone's a great movie. Give me a break. <laughs> So at film editing, winner Dances with Wolves, beating, which is so stupid. It should have been Goodfellas for Thelma Schoonmaker. Like the editing in Goodfellas is incredible and iconic and ahead of its time. Like just for that last half hour with the helicopter and the making the sauce, like the editing is so good in that part. In the beginning where you intro, like, come on, like you're not going to give editing to Goodfellas. It is but then you exactly what I was going to say. Beating Ghost, Walter Murch, Hunt for Red October, Dennis Verkler, John Wright, and of course Godfather 3. But like Dancers with Wolves, do you remember the editing that? Was it better than Goodfellas? <laughs> do people uh, emulate the editing of Dancers with Wolves like they do with Goodfellas in other movies? I don't think so. That is, uh, <laughs> uh, that is weird. Like 1990 was the year of Dancers with Wolves. Dancers with uh, Wolves just won everything or at least all the major stuff and yeah. it's weird because i don't think dances with wolves is a bad movie i like it i think it's good but i mean yeah compared against on every on every level to <laughs> goodfellas you know um cinematography went to dancing with wolves beating godfather three dick tracy henry and june and avalon interesting uh, art direction, set direction went to Dick Tracy again. That's one I think. That is, makes sense. Makes sense is deserved. Dick Tracy is. I yeah. it's an eye catching film. Like it's it's an, like what it's known for is like the weird the colors the sets beating Dancers with Wolves Godfather three the Cyrano de Bergerac the one with Gerard Depardieu I believe and the Hamlet starring Mel. Gibson. Supporting actor, of course, went to Joe Pesci for Goodfellas. How could you not 
give it to him. But it's a good collection of actors. You have Pacino nominated, but for Dick Tracy, not for <laughs> Godfather 3, going against Garcia from Godfather 3, Bruce Davison from Longtime Companion, and the great Graham Greene for Dances with Wolves. But I think Pesci is definitely like, it makes sense. Like you Yeah, have to I mean, hands down, it's, it's Joe Pesci. But yeah, that is a good grouping. And the fact that Al Pacino is nominated for his role in Dick Tracy and not Godfather 3. Because he wasn't nominated. Was he nominated for supporting actor for the first Godfather, right? For the first one, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was nominated for lead for the second one, but uh, did not win our Carney one. Our Carney for Harry and Tonto won in 74. Uh, it's like, so this would have been the shot. Like, if you want Al Pacino to have an Oscar for best actor and it's for Godfather three, this would be, this would be the time to do it. But they, they were like, mm, actually, no, what's, what's the next movie you're going to do? What, whatever it is, what is it? Send a, send a woman. Don't care. You got it. You're you winning. Got it. Yeah. I think that was the year after this, wasn't it? It was 92, right? Yeah. Nine, yeah. 91, 92. It was like right after this. Should have gotten it for Jack and Jill. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Like you should have, you got it. You got it. Um, then we have best director, a good lineup. You have this is an interesting one. So you have the winner, of course, Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves, uh, Frank Francis Ford Coppola Godfather Three, Barbette Schroeder for Reversal of Fortune, Martin Scorsese for Goodfellas, and Stephen Frears for The Grifters, which I don't think was nominated for any other big one. But that's a pretty good lineup of um, of directors. Yeah, um, and you have you have not one but two movies that were not best picture nominees. Yeah, I love it when that happens with director. Yeah, it's great. Like usually there's one. Like they'll allow one in and it's usually a director of a foreign of a foreign language film. Yeah. But here to have two uh non best picture movies nominated for best director is pretty cool. Do you so do you think Dancers with Wolves better directed than Goodfellas? The iconic, <laughs> timeless Goodfellas, w- loved by all. Mm, Dances with the Wolves. Ch- the one that changed cinema forever and the one where the guys like run in with Buffalo. and the, Dances you know. with Wolves, good movie. <laughs> Maybe even really good movie. Godfather 3, good movie. Pro- actually, actually, probably really good movie. Or <laughs> one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> then you have Best Picture. Godfather 3 losing to Dances with Wolves again. Uh, but off per picture, you also have Goodfellas, of course, Ghost, and Awakenings. So, so uh, double De Niro. So double Mama Scorsese and double De Niro. So those were the two actor, the actor and actress with the double best picture nominees. I'll be honest with you. I've never seen Dances with Wolves because I'm so mad that Goodfellas didn't win when I was 10 years old <laughs> that I could <laughs> never bring myself to watch Dances with Wolves. I, I just was so upset as a child that I could, I could never just, I just like, I can't bring myself to watch, uh, you know, three hour Kevin Costner running around the, you know, the frontier movie. Yeah. So my sure it's totally good. Dances with Wolves is like a that's a good movie on its own, but if we you set it up against 
Goodfellas. <laughs> Which, and I mean, like, yeah, like, is if you haven't caught on by now, I'm a huge Scorsese fan because he makes he makes movie he makes amazing movies. Have you ever tried ranking Scorsese movies? It's hard. It's, it, it, it's a whole. It's a list of you go. You look at a movie. You think about it, and you're like, this is one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Number seven. <laughs> where what yeah where would you would you rank goodfellas as number one i i would i would i put goodfellas so. as number Me one too. yeah but then you I, get harder with number two because then you're like oh but taxi driver is amazing and mean streets and casino and king of comedy and last temptation of christ is really fucking good and yeah, just like yeah. it's it's all good it's uh, it's uh which is and why like we said like, in every episode with um, um uh, in our last episode, New York Stories, he made uh, uh, Life Lessons, which story-wise, I didn't care for, but technique-wise, that is someone performing at the top of their game. And yeah. Goodfellas is someone performing at the top of their game. Like, oh yeah. my God, it is so good. It's so insanely good. And the fact that it doesn't win, I mean, you know, best, best picture. And I mean, I was five years old at, at the time. So I don't know what it was like. Maybe the world just had Dances with Wolves fever and they didn't give a shit about anything else. <laughs> I know like uh, my mom was a, a woman in the early, late 80s, early 90s. So she was just in love with anything that had Kevin Costner. So I remember watching this movie like, you know, a million times when I was a kid. Uh, and that's... You know, that, that was my exposure to Dance with the Wolves. I was unaware of the Oscars uh, at that age. Yeah, I was in a very anti-Kevin uh, Costner household. My, my mom hated him. And so we never, I never watched any of his movies ever until people made me, literally had to make me watch them later. So like I never saw The Untouchables until much later, which is amazing. And I never saw The Bodyguard until recent, which is great. I did see Waterworld opening day <laughs> in the theater, but that was when I was old enough to drive and I could go see a Kevin Costner movie. And I've since really liked Kevin Costner, but for some, and I've seen The Postman and stuff, but for some reason, it's just like, it's hard for me. When I was a kid, Dances with Wolves looked so boring. And as I could never bring myself to watch in the length of it and everything, I was just like, no. But I know that I am doing myself a disservice by not uh, watching it. You know, um, I remember yeah. one time I told my, my screenwriting professor, oh, like, you know, Goodfellas lost to Dances with Wolves and like, I can't believe it. And she like had to stop me and be like, no, like you weren't old enough. You don't understand like the devastation <laughs> that I felt as like a, you know, as a, a young woman, a young film person watching Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas lose to Kevin Costner on the prairie. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'm sure the cinematography, I mean, not that uh, Godfather 3 would have been my, my pick because like <clears throat> you said, it looks, this whole, it just looks kind of odd. Yeah. Uh, compared to to the first two and i'm sure like yes dance with the wolves looks good but also it's it's kind of easy to make 
the landscape of you know the scenic landscape of the american west look good you know yeah. it's pretty easy to just put your camera down make sure the lighting's okay and just roll and have it look good yeah um it's worth noting that all three directors of new york stories their following movie were all nominated for oscars this year so you have godfather three you have goodfellas and then woody allen's follow-up which was alice which i've never seen up for best original screenplay as he often was. Huh. So all three of them made movies that connected at least with Academy voters to get at least one Oscar nomination. Like of course, Alice, not as big as a Goodfellas or Godfather three. Have you, have you seen Alice? Uh, yeah, it's, it's okay. Um, and it's another movie where Woody Allen uses uh, magic as a plot device. Is it a comedy? Yeah, it, it's one of his comedies. Um, yeah, I don't know why I've never seen that one. Uh, it's Mia Farrow drinks. Uh, she goes to a, a Chinese uh, mystic. He loves know. the Chinese mystics or the fake Chinese mystics. Yeah, the Chinese mystic. She gives her a potion that makes her invisible. And so then she can like, you know, spy on on people and that affects her relationships. And then I think she can also then communicate with her dead husband who is played by alec baldwin okay yeah that that happens in it interesting uh it's worth noting for the oscars like unrelated to godfather three best actor went to jeremy irons for reversal fortune best actress kathy bates for misery which is amazing very well best actress for that that's so good it's crazy that movie wasn't up for director or picture because that movie's a masterpiece rob reiner love it Uh, i feel we're heading towards the end of our discussion of, of a uh, Godfather 3, this episode getting close to as long as Godfather 3. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any final thoughts you have about Godfather 3 or the Irishmen? Uh, <laughs> I feel I've exhausted everything. Uh, I've enjoyed my, we've, we both enjoyed our Sophia wines. I'm glad we both picked a Sophia wine just in just in solidarity with her and having to be in this movie, yeah. having to deal with the bullshit she, she got from it. So, um, uh, so I just want to bring up that Bridget Fonda is in this movie. Oh yeah, that's, it's so weird. Cause it's you weird. think it's she's like going to be in the movie and she's really not in the movie. She's in it for like five minutes and then she's gone and there's no talk of it. You really think it's like, oh, she's clearly going to be, a main character here. She plays a reporter, so there would be reason for her to be involved for the whole yeah. movie, you know? So but she weird. just shows up. Andy Garcia, like, uh, not really seduces her, but they, like, jump in the bed together. And then some goons from Joey Zaza show up, and they, like, have her hold her at knife point, and then he uh, murders both of them. And she's like, I'm out. And we don't see her again. <laughs> Never again. It's like that whole weird. that's the whole thing like all, also every godfather movie has to have something at the beginning that's totally unrelated to the rest of the movie like robert duvall going to hollywood and he puts the horse's head in the guy's bed and then yeah. the rest of the movie has nothing to do with that but it's yeah. such an amazing satisfying sequence in the first movie that you don't care yeah and in Godfather 3, you have this scene with Bridget Fonda, which doesn't really need to be in the movie, which is not cut in Coda. That is that is in in Coda. That could have been excised. It's, and it's jarring. Like, Bridget Fonda is a modern 
modern person like Andy Garcia. And it, I wonder what it would have been like to have seen Winona Ryder in this and be like, huh, what? No, these are like modern people. They don't belong in <laughs> Godfather 3. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention, I have to mention this, the the scene where the, the massacre at the Atlantic Casino Hotel where a helicopter, mm-hmm. and we never actually see the helicopter. It's just done it. very well. You just hear yeah. it. And then there's gunfire, machine gunfire through the windows, and it takes out all the mafia bosses and dons and yeah. Andy Garcia, you know, rushes out Michael Corleone. That scene starts with, uh, you know, Michael, he's like, I'm out of the casino business. Here's like, I'm paying all of you off. You get all this money. And it shows like Don Nabello's handing out all the checks. And then also being passed around is a plate. Yeah, with like jewelry. jewelry. And everyone, all the mafia dons, all these like old bloated 50 like 56 year old men are grabbing like pinky rings <laughs> off of there and trying them on it's just this ceremonial plate of jewelry Very and weird. then and then my favorite moment in this movie and i mean this how i mean this <laughs> the machine gun fire hits people are like just fucking dying and getting shot up and it's like a scene from scarface <laughs> and there's a guy who runs an old man who runs to the coat rack <laughs> And grabs his coat and says, my lucky coat. It's my lucky coat. <laughs> and it gets shot up. My lucky coat. Blah. <laughs> A little bit of comedy. In what, what, what was that? What the hell was that? What? Like, what Jerry Lewis Zucker Brothers moment was that? <laughs> Can I get his lucky coat? My lucky coat. Well, also, it, that man. part in both versions, that made Coda. I mean, I mean, dare, dare you cut that from, from from either any version of this movie? How dare you cut the lucky man in his lucky coat? I will die with my lucky coat rather than take it from the coat rack and put it on and run away. Yeah, that part is very, very good. Um, so I'm excited. Our next episode is Bram Sto- Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. That's how it should be. That's what it should be called. <laughs> a movie that I really love and I have not watched in some time. So I'm really excited to go uh, get into that one. I I love it as well. I'm so excited to watch it again. It, it, it's a movie that for a long time, like was just, it had the uh, basic DVD release. Like you, it's double-sided and you put the disc in and oh, the movie yeah. just starts. And it yeah. finally got a special edition with the special features and a commentary and a really cool, really cool artwork on the cover. And I own it. And yeah. I'm so excited to watch this movie again. For the longest time, I would say, like, okay, like, yeah, Godfather Apocalypse now. Those movies are great. I love them. They're masterpieces. But really, Francis Ford Coppola's Ram Soaker's Dracula is the best <laughs> thing he's ever done. Yeah, and no, I'm. Re- I, I really love it. I'm really excited. I think I'm gonna stand. I think I'm gonna stand by it. But we'll see where it runs in my, my personal, <laughs> uh, my rankings of Coppola movies. Thanks everybody for listening to us ramble on about Godfather Three. Uh, check it out if you haven't seen it in a while, and if you haven't seen Coda, it's worth watching once. I wasn't crazy about it, but it is definitely fascinating. All right. Well, you can reach us direct at uh, directorswall at gmail.com or uh, directorswall, uh, at directorswall on Twitter. And we will uh, 
meet you again in the you know dark dark uh, countryside of Transylvania for Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in.